Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we ask how much is enough as it relates to investing and building wealth. The answer to this question is fundamental to our approach to risk and asset allocation. I want to know what factors to be aware of when planning our lifestyle and ultimately our retirement so that we have enough to live the life we want. And later, we ask the dumb question of the week. Do passive index funds distort markets? Okay, let's get into it. We talk a lot on this podcast about how to maximize our long-term returns and avoid catastrophic loss. But what we're really doing with our investments is trying to build ourselves a way to live a good life. And that kind of raises the intriguing question of how much is enough? What do you think, Roman? Well, it's interesting speaking to people because I obviously speak to a lot of people during power hours. And these are the one-to-one coaching sessions where we have really frank discussions about what their life goals are. And what really strikes me is how different people are. You know, some people, they've got dynastic wealth. You know, they're really thinking about being guardians of that money over generations. And yet some people are just struggling to put enough aside to retire on. So there's a vast difference between these people's goals and also the way they invest and also their level of knowledge. But I think what's common to everyone is the difficulty of allocating money with the uncertainty about the future. And everyone feels this kind of responsibility both to themselves, but also to their family to do it well. Even you with your billions from investment banking. (laughs) Yes, even me. But really, I think the, the fundamental problem is that we all have to live in this kind of uncertain world. We have to do the best we can with the limited knowledge we have. And no allocation is perfect. You really have to build something which is robust and which will probably meet your goals. But of course, there's no certainty in life. Something really bad could happen and you could fail to meet the goal. But at least you'll have done your best to get there. And that's really all we can hope for, I think. And I suppose when you're thinking about these people with wildly different amounts of wealth and different goals, it's important to remember that money is relative, isn't it? And the smaller the goal, the smaller the size of pot of money you ultimately need. And I think that's a key thing to understand, which is that if you have a fairly modest goal, then to achieve that goal is actually pretty easy. So simply adjusting your life goals is a very good way to ensure that you'll be able to achieve them. And I think most people who are unhappy are generally the ones who've set very high goals and end up having to take too much risk in order to achieve it. You see that all the time, don't you? These people who are extremely wealthy, but also extremely greedy, and they revert to sort of crazy schemes and scams like Madoff immediately comes to mind. Someone who is already wealthy, why did he need to ruin his whole life by scamming everyone? Yeah, that's a brilliant example. I'm so glad you you kind of raised Madoff because, you know, I was amazed at the time that he'd even done this. Because, I mean, he was really well respected. You know, he founded NASDAQ effectively, and he kind of created the idea of payment for order flow, which completely revolutionized many markets. But he was so successful and had achieved so much. But you just think, well, why, why did he have to do that? So Bernie Madoff, he effectively ran one of the world's biggest ever Ponzi schemes. Yeah, he's kind of synonymous with Ponzi schemes, even though obviously it's a much older idea. He effectively created this scheme whereby, so if people were pulling money out of the fund, he'd use new funds to pay them off. So that's effectively what a Ponzi scheme is. And the reported returns that he was achieving were just made up. So he said he was doing this really standard approach to investing, which involves options. 
But then somebody did the sums and realised it was impossible to achieve the kind of returns he was generating with his investment. Didn't stop people investing, though, did it? I mean, that was the thing. He kept having this flow of new investors, which kept paying off the old people. It went on for years. (laughs) And until confidence erodes, you know, these schemes can go on for a very long period of time. What that tells me is on both sides there, neither of those people knew how much was enough to them. Like Bernie Madoff clearly didn't know how much was enough because he just kept trying to build wealth regardless of the consequences. And a lot of his investors probably didn't realise quite how much was enough for them. They were chasing too much return and taking on too much risk. And I think some some of the people I speak to, they have unrealistic expectations about what you can actually achieve with your investments. You know, returns should always be kind of tempered by historic returns. Oh, here we go. Base rates. Base rates. Yeah, <laughs> look, I think, I think that's the important thing to come back to. You know, 6% above inflation is, you know, what US equities generated over a century. And if you get more than that, you have to take more risk. It's as simple as that. And if you do take high risk, what's weird is that high risk doesn't generate high returns. It could generate a huge loss. Of course, that's what risk means, right? People don't think that though, do they? They think, yeah, I'll take more risk when I'm young. It'll all turn out fine if I stick it for ages. <laughs> and they don't think about getting wiped out, which is, of course, what can happen. I, th- I think an understanding of that early on is probably important. But this is why I think financial education is so important, because if you start early, then you've got to take much less risk to achieve a certain level of return. Uh, And that's why I think, you know, if you do start early, you're in such a good position. So, you know, when I speak to people, the most important thing is their age, because if they're pretty young, then they can't really go that far wrong. You know, unless they get a serious illness or or that kind of tragedy in life. That's the power of compounding though, isn't it? It's unbelievable the difference starting at 25 makes, even versus starting at 35. So there was a study that was published on the BBC website, which was brilliant, I thought. And it actually just said, you know, how much of your salary would you have to save in order to achieve a certain level of income by retirement? But the point was that if you're 25, you only have to put aside about £250 a month. Whereas if you're 45, you have to put aside, you know, four times as much, £826 every month in order to achieve the same income at retirement, which is fairly modest, you know, it's a £20,000 a year income. And that's because if you're getting, say, 7% returns, that's effectively a doubling of your money every 10 years or so. So if you can get an extra doubling or two in there, it makes a huge difference to your life. And so that's why starting early and financial education is important. But also taking enough risk. I think a lot of people I speak to don't take enough risk, which is in itself a risk. Because if you have very little equity, you're not going to achieve those returns. If you're cautious your entire life, it seems like you're being sensible. But in fact, you know, not taking enough equity risk is going to have a huge detrimental effect on your wealth. And I think one study that really makes the point that it's important to take risk is the Trinity study, which is referenced a lot in retirement circles. And what that study basically looked at was all the historic returns for the US markets, equity and bonds, and what withdrawal rate, so how much money you could pull from your portfolio each year and still have money left after 30 years. So would your retirement be a success? And this is where the the notion of the 4% rule comes from, which you might have heard. So that says at the start of your 30 years, you determine what's 4% of your portfolio, and that's how much you can withdraw each year, uprated for inflation. And after 30 years, you have a 95% chance of having money left. That's based on 100% stocks. If you went to 100% bonds, you only have a 20% chance of having money left. So it's a, a huge difference in risk. And, you know, it's that kind of counterintuitive thing where not taking enough risk is the big risk there. 
I speak to clients all over the world, and one of them was in Australia, and there was a public body which had actually published these statistics as well. And they said, you know, if you have a long-term portfolio, equity isn't the high-risk product, it's bonds, because they're not going to achieve a return goal over a long period of time. Which I thought was great. I thought that was really beautifully put. And you don't often see that in these kind of government-generated documents. I think people pay attention to that in the bull market, but when we have the next 50% crash, that's when people are going to forget that lesson again. There's a kind of classic study, another classic study, by someone called Bengen which was published in 1994, who also talks about the 4% rule. But he classifies clients into three groups. The first group is star clients who earn really high returns at the beginning of their retirement. So for these clients, you have to counsel them not to dial up their risk because they're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this is great. I should have put even more into equity. Yeah, they think they're a genius. The market's for them. So you have to counsel them not to be too aggressive with their asset allocation. And then you get the kind of black hole clients who immediately go into retirement and there's a catastrophic fall in equity markets. So you have to tell them not to take too much out of the portfolio because if they do, they'll crystallise that loss and it'll have a massive impact over their entire retirement period. That's the interesting thing, again, with the Trinity study where, you know, it's 5% of people would fail. And it's always the case that it's where the market takes a massive drop just after you retire. That's the danger scenario. And this is what they call sequencing risk, which is, you know, an, an initial fall has a huge impact later on, because once you're in retirement, you have to start depleting your assets. So you're forced to crystallize that loss and it compounds over time. So that's why if it does happen, you have to kind of take less out initially. And then the final group of the kind of asteroid clients, I guess, why asteroid? Maybe it's not a star, it's not a black hole, pretty odd name. But he says, <laughs> he says they've just experienced average results over their first decade of retirement. And for them, you should just say, you know, keep to the plan, you know, don't change anything. It'll all work out. Yeah. Asteroid is a terrible name. It should be just like (laughs) orbital clients or something. Stable orbit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Geostationary orbital clients. It doesn't sound so cool, does it? I guess the interesting thing about the 4% rule, and there are loads of caveats around it. And, you know, we could do a whole episode on, is it the 4% rule? Is it the 3.5% rule? Blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing is, as a rule of thumb, it basically means when you're looking at the question of how much is enough, certainly to retire for 30 years, you can take your annual spending and times it by 25. And that's your number. That's what you need to hit to be able to safely retire. So long as it's invested primarily in equity. Well, the other way to look at it is if you've got a million and you take out 4%, that's 40,000 a year. So it sounds like a lot, you know, maxed out pension in the UK, your lifetime allowance is just over a million pounds, which sounds like an incredible sum of money. But in fact, if you think about that 4% rule, then that's a salary and income of 40,000 a year in retirement, which isn't hugely excessive. I mean, it's still above the sort of average earnings in the UK. So yeah, so the median earnings in the UK, I've just looked it up, is about £32,000 per year. So, you know, that's going to be, if you have a 3% rule for a million, that would be what you generate. Or, you know, maybe you'd have like, I don't know, 700000 and you could use 4%. I mean, I think one of the things to remember, I mentioned all the caveats, is that that study was based on US equity returns. So I think in the UK, realistically we probably have to dial it down a little below four percent and also i think the other the other point i guess is inflation is really your enemy i mean everything else is kind of irrelevant what really matters is your return on your portfolio relative to inflation so of course at the moment when inflation's spiking to crazy levels across much of the world i think people who are starting out in retirement must be really worried 
Because if they don't get it under control, then, you know, they could face fairly severe shortfalls over the long term. So I think that's really your enemy. It's inflation. Yeah, if your cost of living goes up hugely, then the size of the pot you need goes up hugely. And that's one of the really useful things. If you have these modelling tools, which look at how much you're going to get in retirement, one of the key inputs to that will be the rate of inflation. And you can do what-if scenarios. You know, what if inflation does get out of control? And it's shocking to see what a 1% increase in inflation does to the time your money lasts. It has a huge negative effect. It's a similar argument to when we looked at the implications of a 1% fee versus a 0.1% fee. And it's exactly the same problem. You know, it compounds over time. Inflation's really the, the kind of mortal enemy of any kind of retirement plan. And you have to make assumptions about it. And those assumptions should definitely be stress tested just in case the central banks kind of lose control of the game, which certainly seems to be the case at the moment. And I guess from a psychological point of view, it depends how much cushion you have in your budget. If you've got a holiday or two a year, you can cut out in the extreme scenarios, fine. But if you're really just making enough to meet your everyday necessary expenses, then maybe you haven't got the wiggle room. And that's why these stress tests are so important, I think. Because if you do have a kind of knife edge risk that if your returns don't meet a certain value, then you'll be in trouble. Or that inflation, if it goes above a certain amount, you'll be in trouble. Then you should either delay retirement or maybe think about other ways of increasing your salary so that you can save more just to build that buffer. But, you know, I speak to some people and the whole idea of retirement is completely abhorrent to them. You know, they say, yeah, there's no way I'm going to stop working. I've got my own business. I'm going to carry on doing this forever. And they don't want to retire. So for them, it's really just kind of play money. Are you one of those people? (laughs) Well, the weird thing is I've kind of created this role, which I love to talk about investment, to educate people about investment. So for me, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult for me to imagine stopping that. It would probably be ill health that would stop me doing it rather than reaching a certain age. I mean, I like the idea of kind of mini retirements or career breaks, whatever you want to call them, throughout your career. That's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. Like my daughter's just turned one and I've really wanted to spend a lot of time with her. And that's kind of what I've been investing and saving for is to give myself the space to take a year or two and just spend some time. I mean, I know I'm doing this podcast with Roman, but this is for fun, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not our retirement plan, is it? Since Michael is, he's almost dying of flu. But, but I, think, I think that's great. You know, I think that's exactly the way it should be done. You know, you work back from your goals, from things that will make you happy, rather than just achieving immense wealth, which is what some people think will make them happy, but seldom does. And I don't think the evidence really backs up that it makes you happy. I mean, there's always this talk of lifestyle inflation and our goals are imposed on us really by society, aren't they? We all want the big house and the flash car and everything, but it doesn't really make us that happy. We're just trying to impress other people. I think people get very quickly accustomed to a certain level of wealth. I mean, you know, working in investment banking, that was very clear. You know, people would be moaning about their bonuses and... Yeah, <laughs> give me the, the tiny violin, please. <laughs> and then they'd tell you what the bonus was and you thought, oh my God, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> so I think at any level of wealth, you know, people get accustomed to it. And we're always looking at the next level up. You know, there's always someone who's wealthier than you. And if you're chasing that dream, that goal, then you'll never be happy. There was a lovely study, which I liked, which said that above $75,000 a year, it doesn't make you any happier. But then it recently got debunked and that made me unhappy. (laughs) Oh, that was brilliant. I love that paper. It's from the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. It's the penis report. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
but this was a this was a research paper by Matthew Killingsworth, I think, in 2021. But what was interesting in that one, Michael, is that he actually showed that people get happier; they carry on getting happier above seventy five thousand dollars a year income. And he kind of, I think, he had people monitoring their happiness regularly on their cell phones. So you know, I am happy. <laughs> Press the button. <laughs> I am happy, like a rat in a cage. Yeah. <laughs> I got a high salary. I am happier now. But what was interesting about it was that there was that kind of linear relationship. But what's really interesting is that it's linear in log income. So you take the logarithm of the income. Okay, what does this mean in human terms? (laughs) So logarithms are kind of a way of taking very big numbers and kind of scaling them down. And the logarithm of a certain number, if you plot it on a graph, which I love, obviously, kind of tails off as you increase it. So that's why the difference in happiness between $20,000 and 60000 is the same as the difference between sixty and 180000 Ah, so I would say this is diminishing returns. Exactly. So the marginal utility, you know, the <laughs> amount of extra happiness you get from every dollar decreases as you get more wealthy. I love it when we, anyone talks about happiness in these kind of cold terms because it makes it seem like it's an impossible dream to be happy when you're like <laughs> the marginal utility of your happiness. But what was interesting is it didn't stop, right? It didn't stop beyond $75,000. But the logarithm thing, I think that's really important. You know, it does decrease as wealth increases. Well, that's a relief because I remember that in my career, when I first started hitting that 75,000-ish number a year, I was like, right, that's it. I don't need to bother with pay rises anymore. It's not going to make me happier. But now you're telling me, oh, it does make you a bit happier. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same with subscribers. You know, you look on YouTube and you see you've got 100,000 and you think, well, you know, why haven't I got 200,000? Yeah, you immediately benchmark, don't you, to the next level. That's right. We're ambitious people. Uh, It's just human nature to be that way. But I think another really interesting outcome of that study is he kind of subcategorizes the people according to the answer to one question, which is the importance of money question. And what they said was, to what extent is money important to you? And the people who said that it was very important were much happier when they earned more. So for those people, it was very important to earn more. And he makes the good point that low earners were happier if they thought money was unimportant. High earners were happier if they thought money was important. So that is interesting. A big part of it's framing. You know, if you could somehow convince yourself, you know, if you haven't got a high salary that money's not important, you'll be just as happy as someone who thinks money is important and generates lots of wealth. Thing is, I don't think money is that important once you get past a certain point of meeting your needs. I mean, I would say I'm a kind of minimalist, which is a needlessly pretentious way of saying I don't own much stuff, but it makes life easier when you don't have to just worry about all your possessions. Yeah, when I step back and think about what makes me happy, it is very simple things. You know, seeing my kids, stroking my dog, going out for a walk. Recording this podcast. Recording this podcast, obviously, Michael. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do enjoy it. You know, so I think, I think that's, that's the kind of thing which people should focus on. Find the things that make you happy. Work out what kind of level of income it would require to just keep the show on the road and keep you happy. And then work to that goal. That's probably the best way to do it. Or if you don't look like you're going to meet a very high goal, reframe your thinking. Think about, you know, what do I need to make me happy? And maybe revise down those goals. I think it's definitely true that getting a massive lump sum of money can be a bit of a curse. There's a talk of the curse of the lottery winner. And I read that about 70% of people who receive this massive windfall of cash lose it within just a few years, like lose all of it. 
And I read that bankruptcy rates are higher if you win the lottery and your average life expectancy goes down. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I do speak to lots of people who've sold a business, inherited money, and they just feel huge amounts of stress because they have to somehow invest this and do it well. Presumably, I'm speaking to the people who are careful, who don't lose their money. And, you know, I think, I think it's a different game because in order to have built a business, often they've had to be big risk takers. But then to keep the money is a completely different psychology. At some point, you do have to transition, don't you, mentally from wealth accumulation to wealth preservation. And that's a very difficult thing to do because these are risk takers. And that's why they often become serial entrepreneurs. They've created a business, they sell it, they're very wealthy. But then in order to keep the money coming in, I think some of them just need to build another business. Plus, it's kind of mentally engaging to do it. Yeah, it is fun, isn't it? I mean, I talked about, you know, having these mini retirements, everything, but that's just a break from being employed by someone. I still, you need to keep yourself active and do stuff which engages you. That's what life is about. And you'd still need a challenge. I think that's one of the problems, which is that people don't understand that in retirement, your job may have defined you in terms of, you know, self-worth. And then once you once you kind of step back from that, then you're kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll be able to spend time doing things I like. But in fact, what happens is you, you get kind of depressed because your colleagues from work are no longer talking to you on a daily basis. No, no, no. I'm no longer talking to them on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, it was a huge shock because stepping back from the investment banking world, I had this incredible kind of intense level of interaction with my colleagues at work, which was fascinating. I absolutely loved it. And I thrived on it. And also the client interactions. The clients were incredible people who invested large amounts of money on behalf of their clients. And it was really interesting talking to them, exchanging ideas. And suddenly you go from that to sitting in a room with a dog and silent. You know, that, that it was very difficult to make that transition. So I think that's what people face in retirement. You suddenly have a kind of stimulating environment where you're forced to talk to lots of people and have interactions with them to pretty much going back to your immediate family. And that can be quite a shock and it can be quite difficult, I think. The way I've heard it described is design the life you want and then save and invest for that. Don't save and invest, get to the point of retirement and then think, all right, what now? <laughs> <laughs> but I think the worry is that you might think you like a certain lifestyle, but then when you actually get there, it's not what you expected. And a lot of them are going to kind of part-time work, and that's simply to get out of the house, you know, to get that stimulation again. So I think that's what most people are doing nowadays, which is you kind of go into this kind of semi-retirement where you're still interacting with other people, maybe you do a bit of consultancy work, and that way you still keep yourself current and you keep that sense of self-worth, I think. But having said all of that, I think it does really make a difference to know for yourself how much is enough. And I love this uh, quote from Kurt Vonnegut. And this was actually an obituary he wrote for The New Yorker in 2005. And it goes like this. Joseph Heller, an important and funny writer now dead, and I were at a party given by a billionaire. I said... Joe, how does it make you feel to know that our host only yesterday may have made more money than your novel Catch-22 has earned in its entire history? And Joe said, I've got something he can never have. The knowledge that I've got enough. And tune in next week for more story time with Romin. <laughs> <laughs> I always love Jack and Ori. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was a great anecdote. I've got something he can never have and that's enough. And I think that's true of so many people. I think they'd be a lot happier if they could find that enough number. 
I think it's useful to discuss your retirement plans with other people who are in the same situation as you. And that's one of the things we do on PensionCraft through our Slack channel. So if you want to learn about becoming part of our community, just go to pensioncraft.com. So today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Liam, and he asks, do passive index funds distort the markets and hinder price discovery? Well, that's what so many people say. So many active managers say that. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, give me your fees. Oh, what's that sound? Oh, it's the rumbling hordes of people leaving active management and going into passive. Passive is now bigger than active management in terms of ETF flow. Certainly the flows are moving that way. But it's still the case that actively managed funds make up more than half of the invested amount of money globally. So I think it's still not the case that passive has massively outgrown active. And in fact, one of the most popular videos we made ever was talking about Michael Burry's comments that ETFs were a risk to the financial system and that they'd suffer in a market downturn. I mean, he's been right before, so I don't dismiss him out of hand. Well, I think what he was talking about was an ETF bubble. And I think that's the wrong way to frame it, because most ETFs are just simple trackers. So the idea with a tracker is you have an index and you copy it. And in fact, many mutual funds, which are actively managed, do the same thing. They track an index, which they're benchmarked against, and they just take small tilts towards or away from certain stocks. But approximately, they're still tracking that index. So it was never the case that there was completely willy-nilly investment. Absolute return funds do that. You know, they invest in anything. There's no benchmark. But The vast majority used to be managed in the US, certainly, by choosing a benchmark and then deviating slightly from it and hopefully generating out performance. So I think for a long time, money's been indexed. It's just most of the returns came from beta anyway, and very little alpha, as it turned out, uh, in retrospect. So I think think saying that markets are distorted by passive is a mistake. This has been the way money's run for a long time particularly in the biggest markets, i.e. the US. But it is true that passive funds don't play a role in price discovery of individual securities. Most don't. I mean, if it's a simple passive index like the S&P, that's true. Money just flows in, they buy in proportion to the market cap and you're done. But for some funds, like value funds, quality funds, there is a tilt towards a certain style of investing. And in those cases, Well, there is price discovery. If you buy a value fund, by definition, it's going to buy the stuff which is cheap. And I guess on a sectoral basis, if you're investing in passive funds based on different sectors, again, that's pushing money into one direction or another. Yeah. So I think think if you just had big index trackers dominating, which is pretty much the case, then it will not kind of have any price discovery involved. But there'll always be some money, I think, which is chasing you know, the things which are undervalued, which have an opportunity for upside, which no one else has spotted. And that will always be the case. There'll always be people trying to beat the market. And so many of those are retail investors now, you know, who do really good research and have the tools to do it. So I think that'll be the kind of active management, which is retail investors trying to make a buck, you know, trying to beat the market, but also quant funds, which potentially could do this in an automated fashion. You know, that's something we're seeing more of now. And I think it's true that it's not the size of the funds even that really matter. It's the daily trading, which is what is determining prices. And index funds, counterintuitively, as big as they are, don't actually trade that much. That's spot on, because if you actually have an index fund, a lot of people think, well, as the index goes up, you have to buy more of the stocks. Not true. If you've already bought in proportion to the size of the stocks and the stocks rise and fall due to price changes, you don't have to do anything. 
you just track the market up and down. No, that's why it's called a tracker, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. If money flows in, then you have to buy more stocks. You have to create more units. But I think the overall tracking argument doesn't generate a lot of trading, which is a terrible thing for investment banks, which generate money from flow from people trading a lot. So there's this kind of symbiotic relationship between active management and flow on trading desks at investment banks and brokers. And if that breaks down, then they're in big trouble. So you can see why there's a huge vested interest in trying to create fear, uncertainty and doubt about passive investment, because the entire system could collapse if if that symbiotic relationship breaks down. I do love to read like notes by active managers where they deride passive investing. My favourite one was from a few years ago from Bernstein and Co. Just the title alone was amazing. It was called The Silent Road to Serfdom, Why Passive Investing is Worse Than Marxism. <laughs> not just not that it is Marxism, it's worse than Marxism. And there's a killer line in it. I mean, I'll read the paragraph. Ultimately, this comes to the social function of active investment. Its primary role in this respect is capital allocation, and as such, it is a force for social good. A Marxist economy where investment is centrally planned is a plausible alternative, but less efficient. However, a supposedly capitalist economy where the only investment is passive is worse than either a centrally planned economy or an economy with active market-led capital management. So, you know, they are not fans of passive management. (laughs) I mean... But it did get a lot of attention. So, you know, it achieved its primary goal. But that one was funny. But but, but look, I mean, there's not going to be a, a quiet capitulation on the part of active managers. Of course, they're going to try and fight back. But, you know, ultimately, the stats are what will put pay to that resurgence, I think. It's interesting that some of the active managers don't fight the trend, really. And they just point at their returns and say, you know, I am beating the market. Like Warren Buffett, for example, his recommendation to most people is just buy the S&P 500 and hold it for a long time. That's what he wants his heirs to do after his death. And we have something Warren Buffett will will never have, a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very good. To play devil's advocate for a second, do we not think the people who are doing this price discovery, the active managers, the retail traders, they are performing a social function, really, aren't they? That's the whole point of a capitalist economy. Should they not be rewarded for that? Like, should there be a tax on passive investment? Are we not freeloaders? In a sense, yeah. I mean, you do depend on those active managers to find out who the good companies are and create this kind of efficient allocation of capital. I mean, that's what people who like markets are kind of obsessed with. Good companies generate good returns, good profits, and they get rewarded with an increase in their share price. Bad companies don't and eventually may get absorbed into another company or go bankrupt. So that cycle of creation and destruction depends on the capital allocators. That's absolutely true. But that's why I think you don't necessarily need the model we've got now which is a bunch of incredibly well-paid fund managers stroking their beards and thinking, it's mostly beards because it's mostly men, I have to say, and thinking, you know, I'm going to buy this stock and it'll outperform. I think the new model will probably be people doing this themselves. You know, individual investors having incredible tools, maybe augmented by artificial intelligence, but certainly having much more access to data than was ever possible in the past. You don't really need a Bloomberg terminal and a research department to do research anymore. And I think that's probably the way we're moving. But there'll always be that undercurrent of active management. I mean, there has to be. Otherwise, it is true that the market would break down. Like if everybody tracked the S&P 500, then it would be meaningless. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that will never happen, but it, it would be meaningless. 
But, but I think the real question is how much active management do you need in order to have efficient allocation of capital? And I think it would work with far less active managers than we have today. And that's the way we're going, right? But there are less active managers probably now than there were five years ago. And the fee compression is not good news for them. And eventually there will be a consolidation, a big consolidation of active managers. And if you look at big fund managers in the UK, their share prices, they have certainly taken a hit over the last five years or so as people become more aware of the underperformance. I think it's also true that if passive investing continues to grow at a fast pace as it is, then the opportunities to beat the market at some point will become easier. Like it'll be become easier to outperform because there'll be more inefficiencies. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point. I was reading Robin Wigglesworth's book about index investing and its birth called Trillions. And that's one of the things he talks about when I actually interviewed him, in fact, on my YouTube channel. And he was saying it's actually becoming harder to outperform because the people who are left in the market are actually now better than they were in the past. Right. Because of this kind of natural selection process. (laughs) So, you know, I wouldn't want to be an active manager in this environment because you have to be so good and your fees are being compressed. I'd do it for like two or three years, take my money while people didn't realise or didn't know what I was doing. And then (laughs) I'd retire, I'd have enough. (laughs) Well, there we are. There's a retirement plan. I think the thing we have to be careful with in society is that we keep the incentives aligned correctly. Like I hear a lot of talk about a financial transactions tax, which would seem to be a penalty against active management specifically because they trade a lot, whereas passive funds, as we said, they don't trade a lot. So that's the kind of thing I think would unfairly impact price discovery. Yeah, I think it would be counterproductive. It sounds good. It does sound good. Like I'm quite left-leaning and I like the idea of I'll stick it to Wall Street and what have you, but they do perform a function that we need. Uh, And look, I think throwing sand into the cogs of markets is not the way to make things better because ultimately it's going to turn into a higher fee for all of our funds because, you know, if it costs more to trade and to track then that's going to go into a higher tracking fee. So, you know, it's going to cost us more. It's going to take money out of our pockets in order to achieve that. I don't think that's productive for anyone. Yeah, ultimately, I think we just need Wall Street to work on lower fees and working in our interests a bit more. Yeah, I mean, do you need millions to be an active fund manager? Do you deserve millions? Or should it be based on a salary? That's the way it used to work in the past. People would have a certain salary for managing a fund, and it wouldn't be a proportion of the invested amount, which they take as fees every year. But somehow we've got into this model where it just becomes a huge asset gathering exercise where your assets under management determine your income and you take a percentage of that wealth every year, which is probably the wrong model and certainly has pushed up the fees. So I think if anything, you know, the Vanguard effect, which comes from the passive space, of course, is to compress fees. And we're seeing that bleed into the active space as well, which is a positive for everyone. Maybe not for the fund managers, but certainly for us as investors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one area with passive funds where I do have a genuine concern is that the whole point of capitalism is you you own a share, you vote and you influence the company. Whereas now we're sort of owning companies indirectly through these massive titans like BlackRock or Vanguard, and they're using our votes. And, you know, we're not really influencing what's going on at those companies. So I know BlackRock is now pushing heavily, even with its normal passive funds on ESG and things like that, and trying to push the company in that direction, which, you know, I like that, but some people might not. And what if they were doing the opposite, right? What if they were pushing companies against DSG? So I kind of think these passive funds need to advertise more what their intention is with their votes that they hold. And then we could almost choose between funds, not just based on their fee, but also based on how they intend to use their votes. 
Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I think certainly some of the people I speak to would use that as a way of choosing a fund. You know, if you've got five S&P trackers, you choose the one which would vote in the same way as you'd like them to vote. So there'd be a kind of political angle to to the fund selection process, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, if fees go to zero, that's kind of where we have to get to, right? What's going to differentiate them? And fees could go to zero because you get money by lending out assets. So that still generates uh, an income for the fund. So it's not likely they'll be starving. You know, they'll still have an income from the lending fees. But, but it's interesting if people do buy stocks, very few people actually go to the shareholders meeting and vote. Institutional managers might, but... You know, even then, they're probably not that interested unless it affects the returns on the investment. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. If you want to keep abreast of the most important goings on in markets and the economy, why not sign up for my weekly market roundup at pensioncraft.com? It's free. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.